And a hail hearty holiday hello to all you music lovers. Welcome to Matt and Cheryl's (laughs) excellent playlist. That's alliteration, baby. I'm a poet. Didn't you know it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hail hearty, everybody. That's Cheryl. I'm Matt. This is Matt and Cheryl's Gen X Lit Playlist, where we run down the music of Generation X and uh, talk about much, much else. We're right now in the year 1977 as we continue to build our playlist. Oh, 77. We're going to linger here for a little longer than we expected. We did a Fleetwood Mac special episode. We had our Christmas episode. Hope you got a chance to check that out. Well, uh, 1977, so far we have uh, added two songs to our playlist, which uh, were Hotel California by the Eagles, one of the two major hits of the year. We'll uh, select our other major hit today. We'll start off with that. Uh, Our other song was one of Cheryl's picks. Uh, Climax Blues Bands couldn't get it right. Cheryl is going to uh, divulge her album of the year, 1977. And as is her nature, she's kind of gone back and forth changed your mind a time or two or three i think we have settled on one now and actually cheryl you've helped me out here because your album was certainly in the running for me as well i've yet to pick my um for 19 i'm really struggling trying to get there's so much album. going on oh, in 1977 yeah. like it's really it, it is tough to choose because there's some hugely important albums that came out that year right I don't know. That's why I was, I've been waffling back and forth, but I think I feel solid with my choice. All right. And I'm going to add uh, a little country flavor to the list as well with my song selection for today. One thing that is indisputable is that uh, certainly for our generation, uh, the generation that is X, uh, Cheryl and I are both in our early fifties. The move, the movie star Wars was uh, incredibly influential, impactful and memorable from that year. I would have been what, eight, eight years old, maybe even seven. Mm-hmm. Um, probably eight by the time I saw that in the theater. And it was, uh, I mean, for a kid that age in that year, a real mind blowing event. It's funny because Star Wars really didn't make an impact on me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know I saw it in the movie theater, but I had, I don't have a memory like so many people our age do, where, I mean, it was such a cultural phenomenon, you know, and such a huge event in people's lives that oddly, I just don't really feel like I had much connection with it or it didn't seem like it made a big impact to me. I've probably seen it more now in the last 10 years than I ever saw it, you know, <laughs> before. <laughs> Although back then you go see a movie once in the movie theater and then that's pretty much it. You know, it wouldn't be there'd be the 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 really hardcore people, but those people were kind of on the fringe. You know, yeah. like the the person like I saw Star Wars 278 times and you know those people are like getting their names in the paper and stuff like that (laughs) that seems to it seems to me that that was really the first movie that had people coming back time and time again to see it yeah that's probably true and and i wouldn't even say it was really the hardcore sci-fi geeks i think just a lot of normal people were just so knocked out by it they wanted to see it several times or they'd seen it and then they wanted to take somebody else to see it yeah, you know, yeah, uh, that's yeah. true. That probably is the beginning of that kind of of going to see a movie multiple times. And yeah, well, it's certainly sound is a big part of that movie. I mean, the visual effects are what made it pretty memorable. But without the incredible sound effects, that movie is not nearly what it what it turned out to be. Not only the incredible music and yeah. score by John Williams, but the sound effects, the the, the sound of the blasters, the 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 electronic buzzing of the lightsabers. 
and, and kind of how that sound changes with yeah, the, the motion zoom, of the and lightsaber. R2, R2-D2's little beep, beep, yep. beep, and yeah. Yep. And then I think most of all, the TIE Fighter. What an iconic sound effect for the TIE Fighter. How does See, that you're sound? Not even, the, the, <laughs> I can't the, even remember. The, <laughs> I, I remember reading how oh, yeah. they how they came up with, I, I cannot remember. I remember reading how they came up with that sound effect. It was like a combination of two or three different things, like some sound from the animal world and some sound that humans hmm. make, and then maybe a kitchen appliance all blended together to make this perfect sound that was so memorable. But uh, I think we'll stand the theme of uh, futurism here with, with, with Star Wars for our next our song. Uh, the artist is Donna Summer, who already established herself as uh, a hit-making disco performer, but the song she released, or this particular song that she released in 1977, the year of Star Wars, really rewrote the book for not only disco, but dance music and and pop music. Now, we've detailed in past episodes that uh, in my childhood, big disco fan, and my favorite disco is is the early, the proto-disco stuff with the big bands, the horns, the string sections. Casey and the Sunshine Band. Right. Yeah. MFSB, Barry, mm-hmm. uh, Barry White's orchestral mm-hmm. work. What disco would become after disco allegedly died at the end of the 1970s is more like what Donna Summer is putting out here in 1977. And when you look at Donna Summer's music, it's not just about Donna Summer. It's really a three-headed beast with her uh, producer-writer tandem, Giorgio Moroder and Pete Ballot. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had just as big of a hand in in her career. They were writing and guiding and producing and coming up with, you know, basically a whole new sound that really didn't exist before them as far as in a mainstream music setting. So this is uh, taking uh, the opposite approach to the, the huge orchestral disco sounds that I love, and it's distilling it down pretty much not exclusively 100% just the machines, but the sound of it, very robotic, metronomic, and almost completely produced by machines and synthesizers. The song is called I Feel Love. It was a hit in the United States, although not as big as a lot of her hits. Uh, I think it hit number six on the Billboard charts, but it was massive in a lot of the rest of the world. Uh, I think number one for a month in England and far beyond its record sales at the time its influence would be pervasive down the road. Mm-hmm. In fact, I mean, they basically created this whole new subgenre of disco called high NRG. And one of the things that really kind of set that apart too, not only were they no longer using actual musicians, they're using all synthesizers, but it doesn't have that funky element. It kind of like takes away that funk and instead puts in the driving beat and everything has to be over at least 130 BPMs. So it's it's fast and driving four on the floor, you know, really basic. And that's like the backbone of so many disco songs after that. Right. And uh, the sound that we know now as being produced by digital sequencers, I don't think they were they quite arrived at that particular technology yet when they produced this record. They really relied on... Uh, some technical help in the studio. Now, uh, the, the Marauder Balot team, Balot was involved in coming up with song ideas, but he was primarily the lyrics guy. Marauder was the music guy, but they had a whole stable of studio musicians. And it's important to note, this is coming out of Europe. Donna Summer is an American born in Boston, 
raised in the church, pretty religious family. Uh, so as a youngster, would have been singing primarily gospel music, uh, discovered voice talent at an early age, actually was fronting a rock band in the late 60s in the Boston area called Crow. And just as they were on the verge of getting somewhere, they'd been offered a record deal, but the record company really was interested in Donna, not so much the rest of the band. She's a very interesting woman, interesting character. Knew from a young age that she had this talent, and uh, she believed from a young age that she was going to be famous, but really took kind of a circuitous route to that fame. You know, she's getting these American record offers, but instead tries out for the cast of hair. Now, we're talking about the late 60s now. Earns a part, but instead of uh, being a part of the American production of the musical, she chose to sign on to the uh, the German company. Munich. So mm-hmm. moved to Munich, Germany, uh, relocated there and stayed there for several years, became fluent in the language, and started establishing herself as a musician in Europe. And she got work on stage in these in other musicals after after hair she started getting gigs as a, a session singer a backup singer and was discovered by Maroder and Balot and they started using her on demo sessions she put out a few records on the continent had minor hits i think uh, starting in the netherlands uh and belgium uh one yeah, of them her first album yeah <laughs> yeah one of them is interesting you you brought it to my attention though this can't so she broke through in the states at the end of 75 going into 76 which is an interesting story we'll get to, but the year prior, 1974, had her first really significant hit in Europe, and it, it's 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 an odd one. It's so strange. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's called The Hostage, and interspersed in the song, there's like telephone calls from her husband who's being held hostage, and you know they're asking for a sum of money and to bring the money there, and the, it's just so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's, and then in the end, they kill him. It's it's over the top, kind of emotional plea. And, and, and my first thought was, this sounds like something that Meatloaf would have done on Bad Out of Hell. Yeah, you know, that, it does. Kind of, it that has kind of that story. very theatrical yeah. kind of back and forth. And it's definitely telling a story. And yeah, I agree. And there's a video they made for it that is just really odd where she's, I mean, it's basically just her acting out the song with these two guys. That these two older dudes the just, yeah. Yeah, just kind of poking around the room, not really doing anything. It was very strange. They don't seem to be that concerned <laughs> no, about no, the, no, <laughs> that no, her husband's no, life no. is at risk here. They're just like, oh, hey, the phone's for you. Not nearly as concerned as she is at yeah. this point. So weird. But it was a hit in the Netherlands and like maybe in Germany, a couple other European countries. It actually did do well for her. So she's starting to establish a name for and you know, in, in that theatrical persona, that's really where she's coming from at this point, having done these stage musicals. And her personality is really more of a, a lighthearted, comical type of persona. And that would soon change because She'd been knocking around a, a lyric idea, messing around with the structure of love and baby, and came up with this line, love to love you, baby, and kind of whispered it in, in uh, Maroder's ear in the studio one day, and then kind of the light bulb goes off in his head. Next thing you know, she's being summoned to the studio to sing on this track, and uh, it's a very sexy performance, a lot of moaning and groaning going on. The song called Love to Love You, Baby. She thought she was basically recording a demo for somebody else to sing and drew upon her theatrical background, kind of summoned the spirit of the song. She said she was channeling 
Marilyn Monroe, kind of singing a sexy Monroe kind of way. And Donna Summer is a superlative vocal talent, uh, the equal of any of the great you know, R&B singers of that era. But she's not singing. She's not belting this one. She's singing in a higher, higher uh, soprano register. They call it head singing as opposed to chest singing, where you're not really using the diaphragm so much. You're like um, projecting out so much. Or yeah. Kind of, yeah. It's an interesting song, too, the way it, it, it changes keys and it goes up and down. But the, 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 the backing track, very mechanized. Marauder thought he had something here. He took it to the United States, got a copy to Neil Bogart at Casablanca Records. Now, they were putting out a lot of disco product this time. This is still early days of disco, too, 1975. He actually requested to Giorgio Marauder to recut the song in a lengthier version. Different stories as to, <laughs> as to what his motivation was for yeah. that. <laughs> but uh, so I think it was Time Magazine counted 22 separate orgasms heard on the extended <laughs> version of Love to Love You, Baby. Yeah. But anyway, this is all happening without Summer's knowledge. The song ends up getting sold to Casablanca Which Records. It's kind of weird, yeah. really. It you is. know, if you think about yeah. it, it's a little creepy. Yeah. So Casablanca puts it out, and it's it's a hit in the clubs. And all next thing you know, it's it's a hit on radio. It causes some controversy because you know it does sound like you know a recording of a you know a, a sexual episode on, on vinyl. Yeah, and actually that song was banned by the BBC and other U.S. stations. Still a big hit it became, and that was it. You know, it was a number two in Donna, the U.S. Pack your bags. We need to buy some clothes. We need to get you to the United States. And then her career was off and rolling. So she ends up becoming this disco queen, putting out these songs that are often very sexual, kind of at odds with her personality, coming from a more conservative background. Although her personality is is very layered and complex, never really felt comfortable in this role as this, this disco queen, this queen of sex persona. But she knew where her bread was buttered at the time and drew on her acting ability to and she was basically playing a role. So now 1977 rolls around and they've come up with this different track for her. Now, a lot of the disco songs she cut already were in that big disco mode with lots of flourishes, lots of different people playing on the record. Now you've got this stripped down mechanized track, which is I Feel Loved, but it's a very futuristic sound for 1977. Now we'd heard synthesizers and we've talked already many times about electronic keyboards coming in to pop music, certainly with Gary Wright and mm-hmm. other things we talked about before. But this is taking it to another level where it is pretty much all, uh, not 100%, but close to, to mechanized music. And really what dance music would become several years down the road once we got into the 80s. Yeah, basically a precursor to like EDM and house music. The impact of I Feel Love was was huge, primar- more in Europe than in the United States. And again, it was it was a top 10 hit for her, but not nearly as big as a lot of her other, other singles in this country. But the, the sound of that, very much ahead of its time, very futuristic. And they wouldn't really follow that thread. I mean, they would cut a few more you know records in the same vein, heavily synthesized. But a lot of Donna Summer's music after I Feel Love, despite that huge impact, would still be back to you know kind of the traditional... Disco yeah, that's sound. true. Yeah. Like on the radio, which came out, I think, in 80, that definitely My was more favorite. traditional. And that one has that too, where it starts out slow and it's kind of like a ballady, you know, 
And then all of a sudden it kicks in with the do, 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 you know, and it's, then it's got the really upbeat tempo. And then the rest of the song goes in like that. That seemed like a pattern that a lot of yeah. the songs followed. Oh, she had um, a few like Last Dance, got to follow that yeah, same, same huge hit for her. Um, and these songs are also really long, too. Because, you know, they're playing them on uh, on the dance floor and they want them just to go on and on. So people just keep dancing. And I mean, this was also a time where DJs were almost as important as the artists themselves because they were, you know, stringing along songs together to create this whole atmosphere for a extended period of time while people are dancing to it, you know. So they were like really instrumental. And Giorgio Moroder's Sound of Production Touch would become a hot item for the rest of the decade. I mean, Don, it Love to Love You Baby was his really entry into the U.S. charts. He'd had, uh, he and people a lot did have a big U.K. hit a few years before that that kind of fit into the glam scene, but yeah. was pri primarily keyboard-based. Yeah, Chicory Tip had a hit with Son of My Father, which is a really cool song. I That song is familiar to me. Like, I've heard that song. And it's got this little like a synth intro to it. And it's, yeah, it's in the glam vein. And it's almost like the Bay City Rollers meet a synthesizer, you know? Yep. You, you definitely get the terrace chant vibe there. That's something that easily uh, a whole pub could sing along to or a bunch of soccer fans at the stadium could sing along to or make up their own words too. Yeah, uh, I know. Catchy chorus. It's a cool song. Yeah. yeah, super catchy. That was his first hit. And that album, I mean, he started, it was, it's more in the bubblegum pop vein. And that's where how he started. I mean, his first songs that he was writing and recording and other bands were recording songs of his, they, they were definitely in the bubblegum pop vein. But with synthesizers, his first album, you can listen to it on Spotify. And it's actually really cool. I like it. It's got a lot. Of, I mean, I love the son of, son of my father. But it's got a bunch of other songs that kind of are in that same vein. It's so fun. he was cranking out hits for the rest of the decade and continued to have hits in the early 80s. And then the, the Metropolis. He did a lot of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say he did a lot of soundtracks and right. things like The Metropolis yeah. soundtracks. And that's that, that was uh, kind of a cult hit for a mm -hmm. lot of people our age. It wasn't really considered a successful enterprise at the time, but that struck a chord with a lot of people. Yeah. Freddie Mercury has a song. John Anderson from Yes does a song. I mean, it, yeah, it's kind of a, a mix of sort of random artists. I think Billy Squire has a song on there. It's, it's interesting. Actually, it's, it's kind of cool. I'd never really heard it before until recently. Donna Summer did a cover of a John and Vangelis song. Did you know that? No, I didn't <laughs> see that. State of Independence. Huh. Interesting. She was really a, a fascinating woman. Very intelligent, very articulate. Went through some traumas, as uh, a lot of our favorite artists do, that, that feeds into the music. And then she kind of had the good sense to look beyond disco and, and want to branch out into other avenues kind of at the right time when disco was becoming passe and sued to get out of her contract with Casablanca at the end of the 70s and was actually, I did not know this until researching this episode, but her album, The Wanderer, was the first album released on Geffen Records. She was the first mm. big signing for uh, David Geffen's new label. The album that I Feel Love came from, it's called I Remember Yesterday. The first couple songs, the first song is like a 40s feel. The second one's a 50s feel. The third one's a 60s feel. It's And she's kind of like all over the place on this album. It's not. And there are a handful of other tracks that are disco and definitely have similar sound as I Feel Love, but certainly not all in that vein. And she's showing her versatility as an artist, uh, really a top tier vocalist with a lot of varied influences. 
Uh, I mean, she lists Mahalia Jackson, Aretha Franklin's influences, but also two of the biggest influences on her as a singer, Barbara Streisand and Judy Garland. So hmm. uh, that was obviously a labor of love, getting able to tap into those older songbook styles. And then the whole idea behind that album, it's a concept, is they're doing the sounds of each decade, but then I Feel Love is the last track in the album, and that represents the future. And when they recorded the track, I don't think anybody expected that this was going to be some great hit. I think it was just really an, it's just another album track, something to close no, the record. No, because actually, yeah. when they first released it, it was the B-side to Can't We Just Sit Down and Talk It Over. That was the first single. I Feel Love was the B-side, and then it started making an impact, so they put it out as an A-side single. So, it let, yeah, I mean, I think that they didn't really have an idea that it was going to become as big as it did. Which is kind of hard to believe when you listen to it and compare it to, I mean, it, when, when you figure that came out in early 1977, I mean, nothing sounded like maybe Kraftwerk. And uh, certainly they're drawing on that German yeah. influence. A lot of disco is drawing on American song forms. This is a very European sound on this it record. Is. Yeah. Really, I think uh, she's been gone now for close to 10 years, died young, lung cancer, not a heavy smoker. She speculated that it was a result of being at ground zero during the 9-11 attacks. Her apartment was mm -hmm. very close and she, she speculates that she breathed in toxic fumes. Although she had smoked in her earlier days, it uh, wasn't like a lifelong habit. So she's been gone a while, and you tend to forget how big a star she was. I mean, she was huge. She was huge, huge yeah. in the if late you, 70s. If you look at, I mean, if you look at her greatest hits, you know all of those songs. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. And, and I know what, I kind of forgot too that she had so many hits. And 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 how talented she was! Just an extraordinarily mm -hmm. good singer and, and very influential on many who followed. You certainly see elements of Whitney Houston in some of the presentation. Yeah, um, uh, and she continued to have hits well past disco. I mean, I, I certainly early days of MTV and and watching Friday night videos on NBC. She works hard for the money. That was a that was a big hit, big yeah, pop hit for her and a great song. Mm -hmm. uh, her career kind of petered out after that. She still had some dance hits and R and B hits, but that was her swan song as uh, a popular hit artist. But uh, yeah, let's not forget. The great Donna Summer is certainly among the best singers of that or any era. And that song continues to resonate in the uh, dance music that we hear today. So we've got our two biggest hits of 1977 now uh, with Hotel California and I Feel Love. And Cheryl, while I still waffle around trying to find my album of 1977, the one you're going to present now was certainly a candidate for me and an album that uh, I've really only come to fairly late in life, probably in the last, oh, I don't know, five, six years, have listened to it quite a bit. Even though I first heard it back as a sophomore in college, didn't really draw me in at the time. I don't think I was ready for the vocals mm, at that mm -hmm. point. But now I see what all the fuss is about. And certainly one of the great influential albums in rock music in the 1970s, and that is uh, Television's Marquee Moon from early mm -hmm. 1977. Yeah. I, I would say that I probably discovered it in the 90s. I feel like it was one of those albums that made an impact right away. I was like, okay, yeah, this is really cool. And honestly, even if you've never listened to the whole album, but you've only heard the song Marquee Moon, just that in itself would make this an essential yes. recording. And I that, mean, that yeah. song is like 10 minutes long, so it's a big chunk of the album. And but hearing, the rest hearing, of the album... Hearing that song on the radio, well after I'd first been exposed to the record, but I was sitting in my car in a parking lot, and I don't know what radio station was playing. And it's rare to yeah. hear that on the radio. Yeah. But I was just transfixed by it. This hypnotic long guitar solo, 10-minute track, 
that kind of forged a spot in my mind. It's okay. These these guys are cool and something for further research, but that further research didn't come till years till later. much later. Yeah. 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 Well, television was part of the New York punk scene. Uh, the CBGBs, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of, a legendary club in the Bowery district where Talking Heads, Blondie, the Ramones. Just- and it's important to, to know what New York was like during this period of time. If you're our age... When we were kids, you heard about big, bad New York and scary yeah. New York. If you've been there in the last 25 years, you don't really experience it the same way that no people way. did back in the 1970s. But that that neighborhood in particular, very gritty back yeah. then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and CBGBs, well, it, it stands for Country Bluegrass Blues. Blues, yeah. yeah. Which Hilly Crystal, who started the club, was initially not intending this to become what it did you know, street punk bands came and ended up taking it over. And and television actually was the first band that approached Hilly Crystal and said, hey, you know, we were interested in playing here. So they sort of started that whole thing going. They were hugely influential in that sense. So initially, they they started out as a band called the Neon Boys with um, Tom Verlaine, who's the lead singer guitarist, Richard Hell, who actually, he was the bass player, but he was not a musician like he he was actually a writer had sort of started like a fanzine kind of thing and he was just one of those guys that picked up the bass and wasn't really very accomplished musician by any means whereas Tom Verlaine was he had been playing for years and had really had a more studied guitar style and then the drummer was Billy Fica they went on as the Neon Boys for a little bit changed the name to television so they actually were television when Richard Hell was with them and they added a second guitarist, Richard Lloyd, who was also more similar to Tom Verlaine. Like he was a schooled guitarist. I mean, he, you know, he knew his stuff. So after a while, Richard Hell decided that he just didn't like the direction that they were going because they were they were not your typical punk band. Not at all. Like no. these guys were very adept and confident <laughs> in their instruments and composing. And, you know, Richard Hell was just like, he was a punk. Like, he was really the true punk. He was the one that Malcolm McLaren came to New York and saw him wearing ripped t-shirts with safety pins holding them together and his hair all crazy and, like, wearing a t-shirt that says, please kill me on it with a bullseye in New York City. And he's, (laughs) you know, like, that was dangerous at that time. (laughs) Like, truly dangerous. We're not talking about just putting on a persona of, like, hey, I'm a punker. No, this is, like, really... It was it was dangerous enough just to walk down the block to the store in those neighborhoods back then, but then to put yourself out there like that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Richard Hell really wasn't. He had known Tom Verlaine for years. Like they went to school together, and um, he broke off on his own. He actually went and started another band called the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders from the New York Dolls, and they played in the New York scene for a long time. And then he went off on his own and and started Richard Hell and the Voidoids, and they recorded an album called Blank Generation, which is a seminal punk album from that era that also totally needs to be listened to by everybody as well. (laughs) But in a much different vein. So it's interesting when you see that versus where television ended up going, because Blank Generation is just like, it's raw, it's, it kind of is more like what you think of when you think of punk. So television, after Richard Hell left, now it's Tom Verlaine, Richard Lloyd, uh, Billy Fica, and they brought on Fer- Fred Smith, who used to be with Blondie, like an early incarnation of Blondie on bass. Well, now all of a sudden they've got this really solid rhythm section. You know, these guys, they've been playing for a long yeah. time. Oh, they could all play. Yeah, they could all play. So they basically started playing around like New York and 
gigging, you know, at C, they started gigging at CBGB's in 74. They actually did, they were playing double bills with Patti Smith, which kind of also gives you a sense of where they were coming from because they were more kind of in that vein of like Tom Verlaine's lyrics are very poetic and yep. they fit well with Patti Smith. Like it makes sense that they would I think they, be they had billed. some of the same influences in terms of like French symbolist poets and Yes. And drawing, jazz. Drawing, more, drawing more on these 60s influences that were right. a little, little out of step with the times. Both Richard Lloyd and Tom Verlaine, they were really into jazz and like avant-garde music. A lot of these punk bands and bands in that, you know, in New York, they were kind of coming from almost like the 50s, like the Ramones or the or 50s right. and 60s, like yeah. a, a 50s rock sound or like a surf sound or something like that. So it's much simpler. Right. Early 60s as opposed to television drawing on some later 60s influences. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Richard Lloyd who was, he was like really into Jimi Hendrix and The Who and The Stones. And he actually went to Europe and was like kind of following them around and when they were touring and kind of getting in and getting in like backstage with these guys and like really getting to know them. So it really did bring a more kind of elevated sense of song construction and like writing songs rather than just being a loud force on stage, you know? So anyway, they played around for several years, like at least I think from 74 to 76, they were just playing around in New York and they did go to Europe, I think for a while and did kind of a tour there. And then they were approached by several record labels at that time. But Tom Verlaine was being very particular about who he wanted to sign with. They wanted to make sure they got a good deal. And they also wanted to make sure they had artistic control. Right. And not only that, but Tom Verlaine wanted to produce the album himself. And so they actually did go into the studio and record a couple different times with first at Island Records um, with Brian Eno producing them. And they recorded a few tracks that would end up not these those particular recordings, but songs that would end up on Marky Moon. They didn't like the the sound that Eno was getting from them. They just felt like it wasn't really what they were going for. And they eventually signed with Elektra. And at this point, they had really rehearsed these songs a lot. Yeah. So when they went into the studio, you know, they were like, they were able to do a lot of these songs on one take. And, and, and live in studio, right? Yeah. Live in studio, one take. And actually, it's interesting because Marky Moon which, like I said, is like a 10-minute song, long song, and it has kind of this jam sort of feel to it at certain points. Although it doesn't, it feels very written, though. Like, it's not, it doesn't have that sense of like a jam song where it just could go anywhere. You know, it right. does seem like it's it's very... Like, um, like the Hotel California guitar solo at the end. It's all very composed. It's very composed. And actually, Richard Lloyd at that point had been notating his guitar solos meaning that he would also be playing them the same every time, you know? And so, but anyway, when they were recording Marky Moon, they recorded one take and they, they, who's, I forget who the other producer was, but anyway, they were like, okay, Andy Andy Johns. Yes, that's right. Andy Johns is the other producer who we talked about in the Eagles episode. He's Glenn John's brother. Right. So he was the engineer in the studio. And so he's like, okay, um, you know, let's, let's try another take. And Tom Berlin was like, no, no, that's it. We got it. And Billy Fica, the drummer, he thought the whole time they were recording that was just going to was just like a practice, you know, <laughs> So it's like, oh, OK, I guess this is the song. Shows how so good a, a, shows how good a drummer he is. Excellent. Yeah. Drummer. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a one take 10 minute song that is perfect, really. Like it yeah. doesn't it doesn't need to be done. And, you know, Tom Verlaine was right. He's like, nope, that's it. We got it. 
They did eventually record another take, and if you get the remastered version of the album on CD, it'll have both of those on there. There's not a great difference Uh-oh. between the two. So yeah, so television, it's considered coming out of this punk scene, but r- really Marquee Moon, considered by many to be the first so-called post-punk record, even though it hit store shelves long before the Sex Pistols <laughs> only album did. Um, yeah. It, it really uh, has more of the the post-punk sound, which is bringing in other influence. It's got a very progressive feel to it. Uh, as you mentioned, two accomplished guitars and the interplay between the two guitars mm-hmm. is very interesting. It's dual lead guitars, once again, like we talked about with Thin Lizzy. It's not traditional lead and rhythm. Uh, mm-hmm. They do traditional lead and rhythm patterns, but they will switch back and forth where Verlaine might be playing lead and Lloyd rhythm, then they'll go back and do it the opposite way. So it's constantly shifting. But these intricate guitar parts, solid rhythmic backing, Billy Fanka coming out of a jazz background, really solid drummer. And then the sound of the record, not just what's being played, but the way it was recorded really made it stand out. And that was really Tom Verlaine's goal all along and why they took so long to get a record deal is they really were very particular about how they wanted this album to sound. Now they bring in Andy Johns, who's worked on these huge rock records like Led Zeppelin. But, you know, it's like, we're not doing that. We're not putting, it's going to be a dry sound. We don't want a bunch of effects on it. And that's what really makes it stand out for, for 1977. It's a great, it's a great sounding record, but it's very, it's very dry recording. Not a lot of reverb or echo or effects on the guitars or, or, or the vocals. It's in your face. Uh, It sounds amazing. It's beautifully played and the songs are memorable. Of course, Marquee Moon, a beautiful piece of 10 minutes long. My favorite track would be the lead track, See No Evil. I think one of the mm-hmm. greatest songs to come out of that era. That's a little more up-tempo, kind of traditional rock yeah. backing to it. But really but, cool drums, really cool like drum patterns. And, oh, and the um, interweaving guitars there at the beginning. That, that guitar oh, pattern yeah. is so great. And that's that. really one of the things that makes them so unique is like those two, the two guitars kind of like jigsaw piecing together yeah. and playing off each other and... And then you also have Tom Verlaine's vocals, which are very emotional and like, oh, I don't even know. How do you describe it? Like an aching almost when he's, yeah. he's singing. It's like, it's like, it's almost very, sounds painful sometimes. And Not a traditional good vocalist, very nasal, uh, not a lot of range, not always on key. Uh, they were hit and miss proposition live. When they were on, they were incredible, but they had a lot of off nights. And like His I said, vocals actually remind me a lot of Patty Smith's. Sometimes it's not like he's even singing. It's more like yeah. he's just, he's, he's like yeah, reciting. Again, not <laughs> like a traditional good a singer. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, when I first heard television, Marky Moon, I was not ready at that point. Uh, the vocals put me off, but uh, like I said, hooked in by the incredible, incredible guitar work on Marky Moon. And then I picked up the CD probably oh, nine years ago, got around to listening to it pretty heavily, you know, in the last three, four years. And now it's definitely one of my favorite, maybe my favorite album of 1977, too. Certainly up there. No question. Well, you know, from that year, especially in that genre, you've got like several important albums that came out. I mean, the Sex Pistols album came out in 77, the Clash first album. Wire Pink Flag, Damn, the Damn, Damn's Damn. first yep. album. Yeah, Buzzcocks, The Jam. The Saints. So, yeah. So going through and looking at all those and like, huh, let's see what, because we could have picked any of those really. But I think- And I still might. <laughs> you might. That's true. You haven't picked yours yet. But The, the Saints album is definitely in the running. Definitely. Yeah, I know. That's a big yeah. one for you. Um, 
But Marky Moon is definitely one of those albums that I go back to and listen to more than any of those others that I just mentioned, because it is so it's so deep. Every song on that album is great. The lyrics are great. Some songs are amazing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, the lyrics are great. And really, I just and I love that kind of dissonant guitar. Like, that's Mm. one of my favorite things. And they sort of started that. And that that was sort of what went on with the post-punk movement after them that that they really influenced was that kind of crunchy, dissonant guitar that um, angular, you know, angular guitar sound. And there's actually a lot about I mean, apparently the edge was like very influenced. Uh, by Tom Verlaine and, and Richard Lloyd. I think he had a uh, comment about trying to get their sound just by himself using effects and, and echo. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And also like R.E.M., Joy Division, lots of lots of bands will the name list, check television. The list is endless. Mm-hmm. And the album still sounds modern today. I mean, it does not sound dated at all. It does, exactly. Yeah, which is why I think it really stands way ahead and above all those other seminal punk albums, you know, from that year. And it's, it's a sound that, you know, when, you know, everybody's trying to write the obituary for rock and roll music, but then it there's these resurgences every few years, you know, the garage rock revival, early 2000s, a band like The Strokes drawing very heavily mm-hmm. on that sound. Certainly. Yes. Television yeah. and Wire, probably the two biggest influences on their sound. Wire, another album, Pink Flag, Sony the Rumming. For that 77. could be in the running for your favorite, right? Yep. And another mm-hmm. one that sounds very fresh today because the way it was recorded, you know, true. Just, yeah. Uh, doesn't date it. So that's uh, Cheryl's pick. Uh, I'm still working on mine. We started the episode talking about Star Wars and, and futurism leading into Donna Summer. Well, the number two movie of 1977 was an entirely different proposition. That was Smokey and the Bandit, kind of a Southern comedy road tale starring Burt Reynolds and Sally Field. Huge hit. And that ties into my song selection for 1977, because in that movie, you had the great song Eastbound and Down performed by Jerry Reed, who was a a rock and roll country performer, an amazing guitarist, Jerry Reed. So uh, they got a musician to play his buddy in the movie, The Snowman. That was not Burt Reynolds' first choice. He wanted Merle Haggard to play that part. But apparently Merle and Burt appeared at a, uh, a special that was produced at a prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. And Burt's behavior on stage kind of turned Merle off. And uh, if you know anything about Merle Haggard, we'll, we'll explain his background here. You don't want to get on Merle's bad side. He Had, had no he ever in- done any acting before? At that point, I'm not sure. Maybe a little bit on television. He would do a little bit of acting throughout his career. Not a ton. But Merle Haggard, if you're chiseling the Mount Rushmore of male country vocalists, certainly one of the four faces that's going to be up on that mountain. Uh, Haggard, born in uh, a town called Oildale outside of Bakersfield, California, tail end of the Great Depression, grew up poor. His father died at the age of nine. Uh, His life Started getting uh, uh, a little bit off the rails soon after he was getting into trouble, spent a lot of time in juvenile detention, was in and out of facilities. He was constantly breaking out of those facilities, running away from home, uh, hitching aboard freight trains and traveling around. Gets into his teen years. The crimes start to become a little more serious, although never really serious. Uh, Petty crimes. Finally, his his last escape out of a, a jail got him banged up in San Quentin, a maximum security institution in Northern California. Now we're in the late 50s. He was sentenced to fif- up to 15 years for his latest crime of breaking into a, a roadhouse. 
during his time there, witnessed Johnny Cash play a concert there. Of course, Johnny Cash released a very famous album about a decade later, recorded in that prison. And then he had a couple of experiences in the joint that turned his head around. He got to know a couple of death row inmates, one of whom was executed, and then another inmate that he had formed a relationship with actually escaped and was involved in a capital murder in the pursuit of a criminal activity. He got sent back to prison and sentenced to death. And finally realized he, he needed to get his act together. Uh, he got released in 1960 after three years. He learned guitar and fiddle as a youngster, showed some musical ability. In fact, as a young teenager, was in the audience at a Lefty Frizzell concert in the early 1950s, ended up backstage somehow, and Lefty heard him sing along to a lot of his songs and said, hey, you know what, uh, before I go on, we're going to have to get this kid out here because he does me better than I do. And so... Merle got a taste of performing in front of that audience and got bitten by that bug. He continued to have issues with the law and, and, and go to prison. But once he finally got out in 1960, kind of put his nose to the grindstone, started pursuing a career. Now he's coming out of Bakersfield. Now we've heard reference to the Bakersfield sound and really the two artists that that refers to would be Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. And the whole idea behind the Bakersfield sound is that it is a, uh, not unlike the sounds coming out of England and CBGBs in 76 and 77. It's a reaction to the popular status quo music of the day. And in country music in Nashville, that was what was termed country politan, which was very heavily produced, a lot of sweeteners, string sections, choral voices, um, the idea of, of building songs that could cross over into the pop market. Well, this was a reaction to that, getting back more to the roots of country music, the the bars, the honky tonks, uh, music for the working class, the working men, and their songs were lean and mean, uh, rhythmic, a lot of steel guitar, fiddle, uh, and guitar, no sweetening, uh, no sweet vocals, no strings, not rock and roll, but definitely kind of a in that ballpark. So Merle ends up as a sideman for a, you know, a hit country artist in the early '60s named Wynn Stewart. Stewart had a song that he'd written that he was going to perform on his next album, and, and, and Haggard almost begged him to let him have it. And he ended up having a hit with it. His first hit was called Sing a Sad Song. That came out in 64, I think made the top 20. And then the following year, he's recording for a small label at this point and has an even bigger hit called My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. Somebody at Capitol Records had the good sense to buy him out, get him out of his contract with Tally Records, and brought him on board. He formed a band called The Strangers, and then his career was off and running with hit after hit for the remainder of the decade. And these are brilliant songs. And he writes a lot of his own material, which makes him pretty unusual in country music. A lot of the top artists are generally performing songs written by outside songwriters. That's just the way the system works in Nashville. But he's working outside of that. Buck Owens recording a lot of his own compositions. Merle Haggard recording primarily his own compositions. And what a talented writer, poignant writer. He's drawing uh, on a lot of his hits, a lot of his music. He's drawing in his own personal experiences. And he'd had plenty to draw on with prison time, working dead-end menial jobs, uh, struggling to raise money and feed a young family. So he becomes known as the poet of the working class. And really, that's the crowd that he's speaking to with a lot of his music. He gained more notoriety in 1969 with the release of what would be his biggest hit to that point called Okie from Muskogee, which was a song that appeared to be poking fun at the hippies and embracing 
a more traditional uh, heartland lifestyle. Although there's many different interpretations of that song. And Merle has been sly. He's, he's no longer with us, but over the years, he would kind of change his tune on that song more than once where they said it was just goofing around. Uh, other times it w- he wanted to write a patriotic song when that wasn't cool. But that's kind of what makes that song very cool is just the the many different ways that it can be listened to and viewed. And when I hear it, I'm hearing him poking fun not only at the hippies, but also kind of poking fun at the straights as well in Muskogee. And if you get to the heart of it, uh, one of the key lines of the song is, we don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. Well, yeah, that may be true, but uh, to let's not make the mistake of thinking Merle and the Strangers were a bunch of teetotalers because they, yeah. they were having a good time. And I'm sure there was plenty of marijuana being smoked as well. Maybe not by Merle at that point, but but certainly down the road, he would be right there puff for puff with Mil- Willie Nelson in, in mm. the marijuana stake. So, That's saying a lot. <laughs> so he, he kind of had this reputation. Uh, he was really adopted by uh, right-wingers for songs like that. And then the follow-up was an even stronger excoriation of Vietnam War era protesters called The Fight Inside of Me. And that sounded pretty sincere when you listen to it. Uh, it sounded like an angry man, but he pivoted away from that. He was very coy with his politics. Uh, I think the key song, uh, when you're thinking about Merle Haggard's politics and his worldview is called my own kind of hat. I wear my own kind of hat. He's got his own view on things and it's not necessarily going to match, uh, the leftist view or the right view or the center view. He's, he's his own man. He's his own man. Yeah. Um, so he has this string of hits for Capitol Records st- stretching into the 1970s. And then mid-decade makes a move to MCA, not because he was dissatisfied or anything, but MCA just offered him more green. His first album for the label came out in 1977. It, it's called Ramblin' Fever. And my song for 77 is the title track. At this point, Merle is showing uh, signs of influence from the Southern rock movement, bands like Leonard Skinner, Molly Hatcher, Charlie Daniels, Band of Their Elk. Also, Waylon Jennings, who really had this great driving beat behind a lot of his music in the mid-1970s. Uh, Are you, you sure Hank done it this way? Other big hits for Waylon in that time period. And Merle slots right into that whole outlaw country movement because most of his career... He's operating outside of Nashville. He's cutting records with his own band, not with the Nashville studio musicians, which, again, very unusual. Constantly going against the status quo, although he was having hits for Capitol Records, so they let him do his thing. He moves to MCA, and now he's not recording with the Strangers on this record. He's recording in Nashville uh, using some of the top uh, session guys, guys like Grady Martin on guitar, Bob Moore on bass. These These guys played on so many hit country records, they would make anybody from the Wrecking Crew blush with their statistics. The song is fairly basic in its theme. It's about the lure of the road, about restlessness, about the life of a touring musician. It's drawing from, again, from his life. You look at Merle's personal life, key line of the song, I won't let no woman tie me down. Well, Merle was married five times in his life, so clearly (laughs) he didn't let too many women tie him down. He toured relentlessly throughout his career, even after he was a big enough star where he didn't have to do that. That's just the life that he chose. That's where he felt at home. Uh, Like Willie Nelson, like Bob Dylan, like many others, he had a troubadour mentality. And this song kind of details that. It's got beautiful guitar work by Merle himself, who is a fine instrumentalist. Many people don't realize 
not just one of the great vocalists of country music, one of the great vocalists, period, of 20th century American music, but uh, he could play a mean lead guitar, too. He could pick it. Uh, also learned to play the fiddle as a youngster, kind of put it down for a while, and then got more interested. You know, Western Swing was always a big influence on his music, Bob Wills in particular, and he recorded a tribute album to Bob Wills. It was a big hit in the early 70s, so he started getting real good on that fiddle as well. And, and, and there's plenty of live concert material available on YouTube to see Merle in his natural habitat playing with the strangers. So not only is this guy an exquisite vocalist, a poignant, beautiful, incisive writer with incredible way for words, uh, he's, he's amazing. You want to talk about gravitas. This guy has swagger emanating from every pore in his body on stage. He is a note-perfect singer, and he's a great band leader. And the band, The Strangers, they started out taut, lean, and mean in those you know mid-60s records. By the mid-70s, this had expanded into a big band. So he's got multiple guitars, three fiddle players, steel guitar, horn section, piano, you name it. And in a Merle Haggard concert, they're all going to get multiple opportunities to shine and get solo showcases. It's uh, it's it's fun music live. He always was a great live entertainer and rambling fever. Maybe not my favorite Merle song over. It's pretty hard because he's got a ton of amazing songs over the course of a decades long career. If I were forced to pick one Merle Haggard song, I'd probably go with Mama Tried from 1968, but I just think it's the note perfect record. But Ramblin' Fever is a record that I could certainly identify with. It's an incredible vocal performance. Uh, as as a sportscaster and a, and a broadcaster by trade, I'm obsessed with voices. Merle, I, I love to sing, as you may have noticed on some of our prior episodes. I, I don't hesitate to bring in a song. Yeah, and you have Ra- a good voice. Well, I, see, here's the point I'm trying to make. I don't have a naturally good voice. I got to work to get my voice to work the way I want it to. And a good example, if I feel my voice is ready for a, a game broadcast, meaning I've got the range I want it to have, uh, particularly in the lower register, which is important, I think, in, in sports broadcasting, I'll try and tackle a Merle Haggard song like Ramblin' Fever, where uh, the beginning part of that, not for the faint of heart, if you can, it starts out, it's the great start to that song. My hat don't hang on the same nail too long. My ears can't stand to hear the same old song. And I don't leave the highway long enough. And I can't hit that note today, so I'm not going to try it. But the next line is to get bogged down in the mud. So he's he's at a fairly high register, and he goes, to get bogged down, and he gets down in that mud. Down in the mud. deep into that mud. He's got a little waver in his voice, a little melisma. It's brilliant singing. And there's very few vocalists that could pull that off. Uh, like Merle Haggard, but uh, just an incredible voice that he had. Uh, just this smooth, very at ease, confident singing style. Yet at the same time, if you look at live clips of him, uh, especially from the early days when he's first started to hit it big on TV, remember, he's only a few years removed from being a recidivist criminal banged up in San Quentin for up to 15 years. So, And he didn't divulge his background right away after he became a hit artist. He was very reluctant to do that. He was very concerned about what that would do to his career. And I think Johnny Cash was the one who kind of pushed him to, no, man, you don't get it. (laughs) You're the real deal. And the more folks know about who you are, the more they're going to respect you. And boy, was that ever true. Because Merle Haggard is, to me, the epitome of what country music is all about. It's about uh, rural people 
working class people, down the downtrodden, the downhearted, struggle, uh, strife. And Merle experienced that all in spades. And it all came out in his incredible art and music. And Ramblin' Man, one of my favorite uh, expressions. Uh, it's, not, it's not the prison songs. It's not the poverty songs. This is the touring musician, the life I've chosen, the life I've loved. And if you're a woman and you're going to be in my world, you got to accept that. You got no other choice. Because he's I'm a rambling be man. <laughs> yeah. I'm a rambling man. That was a later hit yes. for him, right? That, in fact, that's at a point in time he'd had uh, toward the tail end of his run at Capitol. He was just having one number one hit after another throughout the seventies. One of the greatest was uh, end of seventy three. If we make it through December, which mm-hmm. is a very poignant song about Christmas time and the struggle of a family trying to create a, a Christmas for their children when they don't have the means. Got laid off yeah. down at the factory and their timing's not the greatest in the world. He just had that incredible feel for that the, one the has some struggle current people. artists. Uh, Phoebe Bridgers did a cover of that one and maybe a couple others too. Yeah. 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 Well, there's been countless covers. A lot of people probably, yeah, but more and, recent, like, yeah. And you hear a lot of contemporary country and Merle's name is always getting dropped. Yeah, we we respect the roots of country. Well, Merle Haggard certainly didn't respect a lot of contemporary country. He had mm-hmm. no truck with most of these newfangled Nashville artists, and he was not shy about expressing his opinion that they did not represent country at all to him. And mm-hmm. my feeling on a lot of contemporary country, you know, if I turn on a country station, I'll, I'll tend to leave it there because the songs aren't objectionable. They're all professionally produced. They're all well-played, well-sung, usually cleverly written, but they're just very samey. And yeah. there's very few risks taken. They all sound like they're cranked out at the same factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot of originality. You know, when a great country artist does come along that really gets to the soul of what that music's about. They they really stand out. And I just don't hear a lot of that these days, sadly. Even just in the vocal sound, it's yeah. so similar, you know, but yeah, yeah, I agree. And I really haven't gone back and listened to those foundational artists. And I think, you know, you're convincing me to do that. And I, I think I will get there. I'll get well, there. I would say this. So uh, it really wasn't until my mid-20s on a cross-country drive, I picked up a classic country station somewhere in Kansas, and I heard two songs back-to-back that just blew my head wide open. And they were Dave Dudley's Six Days on the Road and Buck Owens and his Buckaroos during I've Got a Tiger by the Tail. And I heard those songs play back-to-back, and it was almost it was just an epiphanic moment on the road. It's like, where has this been all my life? This is what country music is right here. And I'm still very early in my education and discovery, a lot of classic country music. Now I collect a lot of compilation series and I've accumulated quite a few collect, you know, time life did the, uh, the country USA series with a disc for each year, I think from 54 to 72, uh, I collect those. Then there was the, uh, the classic country uh, later time life series. A lot of them came on double discs and then contemporary country, which was focused mainly on the country music from the mid-70s to the late 80s with one CD covering 90s country music. I've got almost that entire series. Of and that's the first time I heard Ramblin' Fever on uh, one of the Time Life contemporary country series. And then from there, discovering Merle Haggard's catalog from a series of compilations. Uh, 
And then the box set uh, that came out in the mid-90s called Down Every Road, four-disc box set. Uh, I've been playing a lot of that lately. So there you go. We've got uh, a couple of new additions to the playlist this week. Donna Summer's I Feel Love, one of the two biggest hits of 1977. Our first country addition to the playlist, Merle Haggard's Ramblin' Fever. And uh, Cheryl's album of the year, Marky Moon by Television. So we got several songs to add to our playlist before we get out of 1977. I got three or four to go. Uh, I've got another big hit that I'm going to choose from that year. It's kind of straddling the disco and funk realm. I've got another song that's kind of straddling the the rock and punk realms. I got to figure out one more song and an album. And uh, Cheryl, you got some great songs to add before you're through too. I know I have at least one more big hit picked. The rest of them I still have to figure out. All right. We will continue to do that until we uh, next meet again. I'm Matt. I'm Cheryl. And this is Matt and Cheryl's Gen Excellent Playlist. Happy holidays, everybody.